Welcome back, everyone. Last time we finished up talking about the two different ways that the endless light expresses itself. There's before the contraction and after the contraction, and it is it, the light comes to the vessel in two different ways. That's what we covered last time. Today, we're going to cover kind of a lot. I'm preparing you now. We're going to cover kind of a lot. But we're going to start with setting up this question about souls. Let's begin. So with what we with what we've learned until now, we can start we can understand what the Kabbalists say about the soul. And it specifically uses the term neshama for the word soul here. It's going to use a couple different terms. And that's because there are five levels to the soul. Nefesh, ruach, neshama, chaya, and yechida. Nefesh is the lowest, yechida is the highest. For our purposes today, we're only going to be talking about nefesh and neshama. So Ravashtag says that the Kabbalists say that the Neshama, which is the, th- the third level of the soul, but we're talking about the soul, is a piece of godliness or the endless light, whatever you'd like to call it. And the only difference between the soul and the endless is that the soul is a piece of the endless and not the entire thing. A little bit cryptic. Let's go into it. So they give an example. Example is you cut a uh, you cut a rock from a mountain, and you know the material of the rock you just cut and the material of the mountain is the same thing. They're the same material. And the only real difference between the rock you just cut and the mountain is that the rock is a piece of the whole. It's no longer attached to the whole thing. can't be called the mountain anymore because you've cut it off. That's what the Kabbalists say. So these are pretty amazing things, hard to grasp. And they're tough to understand. So Ravashlag here asks a question, how can we compare souls and the endless, like these esoteric spiritual things, to the example of a stone and a mountain? So I understand by a rock, a stone, when it's cut off from the mountain, through, um, through like tools, like a chisel. But when we're talking about spiritual things, how will they be separated? Now, if you've made it this far in the class, you know that separation with spiritual things has to do with change in form. So before we answer this question, Rav Ashlag says, first we, have to, first we have to explain what it means to be separated in spiritual things. When spiritual things separate from each other, 
רק על פי שינוי הצורה בלבד. It's only through change in form, like we've learned before. דהיינו, אם דבר רוחני אחד קונה בעצמו שתי צורות, כבר אין או אחד אלא שניים. So when one spiritual entity buys for itself or claims for itself a new form, then it's considered two entities now. It's not considered one entity anymore. If that's a little bit tough for you to grasp, I encourage you to go back and watch the class where we talked about this in depth. ואסביר לך בנפשות בני אדם, and I'll explain to you with the, uh, the, souls, of, the souls of mankind, but specifically the term used here is nefesh, שהם גם כן רוחנים, which are also spiritual, ונודע החוק הרוחני אשר צורתו פשוטה כנ"ל, and we know this rule about spiritual things that Originally, it's a simple form. The, the endless is the original spiritual thing. Everything comes from the endless. So it was simple in form. And it has within it this multitude of souls. How many souls? Exactly how many souls that, need, that there are going to be bodies that need souls. So how are they separated? Through the change in form that there is between each soul. And Rav Ashlag brings that the sages teach us that because the souls are changed, are a little bit different in form, no, no one soul is exactly like the other. That's why there's differences in opinion, meaning the, the whole reason we have conflict, disagreements, troubles between people in this world is because our souls are not, they've changed form a little bit, so there's disagreement, there's friction. And through the different things, of, through the different signs that we see in the body, You can actually differentiate between souls. What does it mean, signs, differentiate signs between bodies? You know, uh, palm and face reading, like my, like my dad teaches. There are all different types of ways to differentiate between souls by looking at the body. This is a good soul, this is a not so good soul, and other types of differentiations. So now you see that just like a physical thing, which is uh, separated to pieces and differentiated by being cut and then separated between the pieces. Similarly with a spiritual thing, is cut and separated into pieces. Through this idea of changing in form between piece to piece, and the same amount that there is a change in form, that's how far apart the two pieces of some spiritual entity are. So that was basically the simple answer of what does it mean for spiritual things to be separated, which was mostly a review, I know, but it's good to go over things again. So, we still haven't answered our original question. What was our original question? 
What does it mean for something like a neshama, which is a higher part of the soul, to be exactly like the endless, except for that, it's not the entire endless. It's a piece of the endless. Now we said the endless, there's no, there's no separation. It's all one. Everything is equal and it's endless. So how can something be exactly like the endless, except for be, except for the fact that it's not the endless, that the endless is everything. So we talked about the nefesh until now. Now the nefesh is the lowest part of the soul. It's considered the closest to physicality. So this is so so we've we've covered how the souls are differentiated in this world. But what about the neshama? It's a higher level. We still haven't explained it. How is it different? from the endless, from godliness, to the point that it's called a piece of godliness or of the endless. And you shouldn't say that through a change in form, So if you want to say that the neshama, this higher level of the soul, is separated from the endless because it changed its form, can't say that. Why? Because we've already covered that godliness is, godliness, the endless, is simple. It's an upper simple light. Everything is one. Which encompasses all these different types of forms. And even the forms that seem opposite in this world. In simple unity. In the secret of uh, one unique and one uh, alone and unique, which we covered last time. So how can we say that the neshama is a different form from godliness? So if we're saying that the neshama's only difference from godliness is that it's a piece of it and not the whole. We can't say that it actually has a change in form because that's not accurate for our description. Our description is that it's exactly the same in every way except for that it's a piece of the endless, not the entire endless. So if it's a change in form, it's no longer just a piece of the endless, it's something new. So we still have a question. And really, this question goes even deeper, Rav Ashlag says. We can actually bring it, we can bring the question to the, to the entire endless, for, as it is before the, uh, before the contraction. Because this is the reality which is in front of us. All of the upper and lower worlds together are put into two, two categories. The first category is the form of all of our reality. So our reality before the contraction was that there was no boundaries or ends to anything. And this category is called the endless light. The second category is 
after the tzimtzum, after the contraction. Everything has boundaries and measurements. And this category is called the four worlds. and The world of formation, the world of creation. Sorry, no, the world of emanation, the world of creation, the world of formation, and the world of action. And we know that in the, in the essence of the creator, our brains, our minds, cannot possibly grasp any single part of it except for the fact that it is the essence of the creator at all. And we have no name for it. We call it the essence of the creator, not as a name for it, but as a reference to something that we cannot understand. Because whatever we don't understand, we can't give a name, like we covered in the earlier classes. Because every time we give a name to something, that means we understand some part about it, at least. Because by giving it a name, it means that we understand it. How? What part of it do we understand? The aspect that we've given it its name. So, for sure, when we're talking about the endless, there cannot be any name or term that we use for it. And all these names and terms, is only from the light that comes from the essence of the Creator. That the light that comes from the endless, when it spreads before the contraction, that was filling all of existence without any boundaries or ends, is called the endless. So, I want to drive home this this point because we covered it in one of the in one of our earlier classes, but I want to make sure we remember. There's the essence of the creator, and then there's the light that comes from the essence of the creator. That's called the endless light. So we now have to understand how the endless light is. I don't want to say bordered, but that's the word used here bordered to itself. So, now remember, the endless light doesn't have any borders. It's endless by definition. But there needs to be something about it that gives it a name that's not the essence of the creator. Otherwise, it would be the same entity. It would all be the essence of the creator. So just like we asked a question on the neshama of how can we give it a name that's not endless if it's just a piece of the endless and everything else about it is the same. Same thing with the endless itself, the endless light. How can we give the endless light a name without coming up with some something about it that makes it not the essence of the Creator? And to understand all these lofty principles, we have to go even wider and deeper. And we will investigate thoroughly all of the existence that we have in front of us. And its general beginning. There is no action without a beginning. So what was the, what's the beginning? What was the purpose of everything? 
What was the reason that the creator, the essence of the creator, made all of this reality? The upper worlds and the lower worlds. So why, why was any of this, why did any of this happen? We've already been given a, 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 the beginning of an answer by the sages. In many places. So the famous answer is that all of creation was created for the people who learn Torah, do the mitzvot, do good deeds. These are, these are the people that the entire existence was created for. This is the famous answer. But we have to understand so we have, now we have to understand the sages asked a question on this answer of why was everything created. So if everything was created for the people who do Torah and mitzvot, we have a question on this. What's the question? If the intention of the creation of the worlds is in order to give pleasure to his creations, why create the physical world, which is disgusting and filled with suffering? So the question is, if the whole point of creation was to give pleasure to his creations, it seems like it would have been a better idea to stop just before the physical world and let his let the spiritual creations have endless enjoyment without any of the problems that the physical world poses. Only in the physical, wor- physical world do we have war, hunger, relationship problems, money problems, all these different things that are that we've come to accept is just part of how the world works only exists in the physical world. So why create a world with so much pain and suffering? Why create a body that eventually rots and dies if the entire point of creation is to benefit his creations? And they exp- so the sages explained on this. So they bring a line that basically says one can't sit in fr- like let's say someone invites you into their home and they feed you and they sit there and they're not eating and they're just looking at you. How weird do you feel? I would feel very weird. I can't eat when everybody around me is not eating too. If I'm the last one to finish eating at a restaurant, okay. But like to just sit there and have people staring at me while I eat, I can't do that. So what does that mean? Every time we get something for free, it it comes with it, this idea of being embarrassed. And in order to save the souls from having this feeling of embarrassment, he created this world where we have this idea of work. 
and then afterwards in the future they will they will benefit from the from the effort that they did so through the work that we do in this world our souls don't have to be embarrassed when we receive the endless reward of the world to come okay and these words of the sages, so these, these words are tough to understand from beginning to end. From the beginning it's hard to understand. Because why is it difficult to understand? Because everything that we, our goal, our, everything we pray for, when you pray, do you ask God, to let you work some more so that you can get what you want? Or do you ask for what you want? We don't want to work. If you had the choice between having to work really, really hard every day to have enough food to feed it, to have enough money to feed your family, or having it fall out of the sky every morning, I think the average person would rather have it fall out of the sky every morning. So from, the very, from our core, it's not what, we don't want this to happen. Every, even, even in the prayers which were written by the sages, we don't ask God to let us work more and then get stuff. We ask God, please save us from this. Please forgive us for this. Please give me this. That's it. That's, that's what prayer is about. So why are we, so how come even, even in the things that the sages wrote, we're not talking about this idea of work? And the sages said that the chamber of gifts for free is ready only for the biggest souls in the world. Whatever that means. And even tougher to understand is their answer. Because they said that with any, anything that we get for free, there is a big lack. What's this lack? This embarrassment that every that everyone who gets something for free feels is a lack. So the sages say that so in order to avoid this embarrassment, that's why God created the physical world, so that we would have this idea of work, of effort. And then when we get to the world to come, we can take our reward. And their explanation is a big wonder. What's, what is it similar to? Why is it so crazy? So we'll give you an example. Somebody says to his friend, Help me out for five minutes. And as payment, I will give you every pleasure there is to be known in the entire world for your entire life. Now I want to stop here before we continue. I want to just think about that for a second. You were probably expecting some sort of question that 
wasn't saying that the reward is too great because that's what we're saying right now. It was something to do with maybe how does the how does the work here have to do anything with the spiritual world? Or maybe you were thinking, you know, why couldn't God just create a world without embarrassment? No, no, no. What we're saying here is that the reward for whatever we work on during this life is so great that it doesn't make sense for us to actually work since it would be considered still like still like a free pass because the amount of time we're working say a person lives 70 80 120 years person lives 120 years but Hashem lives a very long life worked every day of his of their life to be the best most spiritual person in the world and after that they spend eternity in absolute bliss seems like a good deal to me <laughs> Like a really, really good deal. You can't get that deal anywhere else. So what Rav Ashlag is saying here is, what doesn't, make about the, what doesn't make sense about the sage's answer? The reward is way greater than the amount of effort. So how can it possibly be about embarrassment? If the whole point is that we're embarrassed when we get stuff for free, what's the difference between you get a million dollars every year for doing nothing versus you get a million dollars every year for making one phone call? Doesn't seem to be a big difference. Because you don't have a bigger free pass than this. The reward has no, no standing of equality with the amount of work. Because the work is in this physical world, a, a world that changes, a world that passes. It doesn't have lasting anything. It doesn't have any value in comparison to the reward and the pleasure of the of the eternal world. What value can a physical fleeting world have to the endless world? So the quality of the amount, like the quality of the effort, meaning like no matter how much suffering a person goes through here, how hard it is for them here, the quality of the reward is just so much greater. Because, and Ravashak even goes further to say, he quotes, he quotes from the sages that every righteous person God gives them 310 worlds now we're not talking about physical worlds here before we get into the Book of Mormon stuff uh, if, you've, if you haven't seen the musical Book of Mormon listen to the songs it's quite funny so it's not about getting 310 physical worlds we're talking about spiritual levels here so every righteous person is awarded 310 worlds of spirituality to themselves and you can't say that oh some of it is for the work for the work that they did and the rest is free. This isn't what the sages said. Because if you wanted to say that oh the first little bit that's the payment for the work that we did here but the rest is free then you'd still have the problem. Of embarrassment, so we still have, we have to get around this. 
אלא שאין דבריהם אלו מובנים כפשוטם, אלא שיש כאן כוונה עמוקה. These things cannot be understood as they are simply, we must go deeper. And we are going to go deeper. וטרם שאנו נכנסים בביאור דבריהם ז"ל, And before we explain this, now we're kind of like in an inception of questions going on here. First we had the question on how can the neshama be simultaneously the same as and separate from the endless. After that we had the question, we had the, a similar question about the endless itself. What makes it not the essence of the creator? And then within that we had the question of... What is the whole point of all of this creation? Because in order to understand the, the, first, the first couple of questions, we need to understand what was the whole point of all of this. Once we understand the whole point of all of this and how it's supposed to work from the most outside perspective possible, then we can go in and answer all of our questions. So before we answer our third question, first we have to understand, we have to understand The thought process of the Creator in creating the worlds. The creation of the worlds didn't happen in a train of thought. Like, like when someone is building something or drawing something, each step is a separate thought. You're drawing a house, first I'm going to draw the frame, you know, four walls. little roof on top, then you start filling in the details, windows here, door there. It doesn't work like that with the Creator. The Creator is one, alone, and unique, like we explained earlier. And just like He is simple, so too the lights that are drawn from Him are simple and unique. Without any form, without any, like, massive number of forms, they're simple. My thoughts are not like your thoughts, and my path is not like your path. This is God talking to humans. Meaning, when we think of things, we have to think of things one at a time, and then we get from beginning to end. When the Creator created the world, it was all done. How? And now you'll understand that all the names and these terms, in all of the upper and lower worlds, is all one simple light, unique and alone. By the Creator, the light that is drawn, and the thought, and the action, and the person doing the action, and everything that it says the heart could possibly imagine, are all one by the Creator. So every step of the process is one. What does that mean? So through this you can judge and understand In one thought All of reality was emanated and created Upper and lower together Until the end of the tikkun Meaning the things that 
from our perspective, don't exist yet, were also created at the first instance in one thought. That one simple thought, what was, what was that one unique thought? That one thought is what drives everything and is the essence of all actions, of everything that happens. It receives, this is where, this is where everything starts, and it's the, the essence of why we make an effort. And that itself, that thought, is the, is the existence of all the perfection and all the reward that were promised. Like Nachmanides explained to us before in the secret of one alone and unique. And Rav Ashlag says about the Ari that when, he, when the Ari made it longer in the first chapters of this book, the book Etzachayim, in the first contraction, I know you're you're getting scared. I said first contraction. That means they're going to be a, there's going to be another contraction. Don't worry, we'll get there when we get there. This idea is one of the most severe ideas. It must be that. Everything that we see is bad. Everything that we see is lacking. Also comes from the Creator. There's a line that we say in prayer every morning. Emanates light and creates darkness. What's the most opposite thing one can get from the from seemingly opposite thing one can get from the creator? Bad things and darkness, because the creator, the, the essence of the creator, the endless light. It's light. It's good. How can one draw bad things and darkness from the creator? And how can they come together? With all of this light and pleasure that is in the thought of creation. And you shouldn't say, that they're two separate thoughts from one another. God forbid you should think like this. How can all of it be drawn from the Creator to this world? that is filled with sickness and suffering and disgusting things. How can they possibly fit into this one simple thought? So now we've set up four questions and we're going to begin to answer them. To warn you, we're not going to answer all of our questions today. But we're going to start. Now we're going to answer our last question first. This entire idea of the, the form of the thought of creation. That 
There's a verse that we say that the end of the action is in the first thought. And what does that mean? So first he gives an example with man, with people. Even with physical people that are of many thoughts, even with people, the end of the end result is in their first thought. How? Let's say someone's building a house. The first thought that somebody had before they built the house was of what the house is going to look like. Before they set out to draw the blueprints and get the materials and everything, first they had an image of what they wanted. And then we go through all the different thought processes and actions. Until he finishes building this form. That he thought about from before. So the completed form happens one time in his mind in the thought at the beginning. And then at the very end when he finishes building. And now you can see. That the end result is in the first thought. So the, the end result, which is the whole purpose of everything, for, for it was created everything. Like it says in the Zohar, what was, so what was the first thought of creation? What was the driving force for everything? To do good for his creations. So we know that with the Creator, there is no separation between thought and action. The Creator thinks it exists. That's it. Not, is not a, the Creator is not a human being. The Creator doesn't need tools to make something. Only, only the thought. And the entire process of action is done immediately. Finished. So now we can understand that the moment that the Creator thought about creating, meaning the moment the Creator thought about doing good for His creations, immediately this light came from the essence of the Creator. With, with all its different uh, shapes and colors and all the measurements and levels and all the pleasures that the Creator thought of, because it's all wrapped up in this one thought, that we call the thought of creation. And understand this well. So, you should know that the thought of creation, we call it the endless light. That's an interesting development. So, we've been talking about this endless light as 
an ultimate giving force, completely endless, everything is perfect everywhere, it's all one simple light. And now we can add one thing to the list of descriptions. The endless light is the thought of creation. That is the driving force behind everything. Why is the endless light a giving, an ultimate giving force? Especially now that we know that the essence of the creator, the, light, the endless light came from the essence of the creator. So the endless light is the very thought of creation. And that's why it's the ultimate giving force. Because the thought of creation is to do good for his creations. So it's not the essence of the creator because the essence of the creator we've already covered. We don't understand a single aspect about it except for that it's the essence of the creator and that's it. The endless light though, while we still can't grasp really what it is, we know it's endless, we know it's a simple light, we know it's the ultimate giving force and now we know the endless light is the thought of the creation. It's the original thought of the creator wants to do good for his creations. That is the endless light. So the one thing I want to make sure we take away from here is that at the beginning of everything, and we'll get into why the world is the way it is today, even if everything is supposed to be for the good. But at the very beginning of everything, from the beginning of what we've been learning this whole time, has been the process of the Creator doing good for His creations. Have a great day.